Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hey everyone, welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring wine tastes and trends with you. I'm here with my colleague, Mark Lenzi. How are you doing today, Mark? Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm well, thanks. <laughs> I'm excited to talk some topics today. Yeah, we have some uh, some interesting topics today. We're going to get a little sciencey for some of it. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on on the research side of wines, wines and wine grapes out there in the world. So we wanted to touch on some uh, some new topics today. We call that geeky. We like our geeky wine geeky stuff. Geeky wine. People. Yeah. So the first article was something that came out from Scientific American about our favorite wine grapes and how in the very near future they might be needing some genetic help to stay viable. I found this very interesting because I, I like chemistry. I like biology. I like all those, all those sorts of things. And then being able to relate them to my career in wine, just it's a, it's a whole lot of fun for me. And it confirms the wine geek and Kim, right? So. <laughs> Absolutely. And this was a podcast, which is great for us to hear podcasts and, and as we talk about a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And the first thing they said was 60% of the vineyards in the world are planted to five or six grapes. Right. Which we tell 60%. our students a lot. You know, there are thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of different types of grapes that are used for making wine out there. But most people only know about and consume, I would say up to, I can probably name like, I don't know, two dozen off the top of my head, but I would say that most people stick to the same 10 or 12 different grape varieties, if that. So there's not this large genetic pool of grapes out there. And what the author of this story in this podcast is talking about is if there were to be some sort of natural disaster, like like the potato blight that happened in Ireland in the 1800s, could wipe out a lot of these grape varieties that we are familiar with. And a lot of that is because they, they're not very genetically diverse anymore, because wine grapes aren't propagated by planting a seed. They're more like a clone of a clone of a clone of a clone of a clone. So they haven't built up resistance to diseases and other things going on in the environment. They pretty much are the same as they were a thousand years ago. So that can be be a problem for an organism. Yeah, these handful of grapes, as you said, Kim, they're what's called international varietals. They can be grown anywhere in the world. So I can see why it's limited because there's certain indigenous grapes that can only be grown in certain areas, but these can be grown anywhere in the world. And I'm glad you mentioned the Irish potato thing that they referenced here because what happened is they kept growing the same type of potato and something happened to it, disease, and it wiped out everything. So now these scientists say, well, let's look at the grapes. If everybody is making the same grapes and something happens... We're going to wipe out 60% of the production right. in the world. And the grape varieties that we're talking about here are the ones that you are probably the most familiar with. Chardonnay, Cabernet, Pinot Noir. Again, those international grape varieties that might be from Europe and might have started in France, but now are grown all over the world. So we have we, we have the big six noble grape varieties that we like to talk about. So Riesling and Syrah and Sauvignon Blanc are in there too. But then there are some other ones that are a little bit less well known, but that are still really important. 
important for the market, like um, Grenache and let's see, what would be another one? Say Syrah, maybe. Syrah, Pinot Noir, Merlot. So, you know, there there are these names that people are familiar with, but then there's all of these other grapes out there that are used for making wine, but maybe in more specific locations and aren't really seen in other places. So I thought that this was an, a topic that I hadn't really thought about. It's kind of read it and listened to it and sort of scratched my head like, okay, I can see why people, some people are worried about this. Yeah, when I started hearing it, I don't know if listeners are thinking this now, but I was thinking, oh, I got to create a bunker and I got to store up some <laughs> wine, right? But then they said, oh no, this we're looking at 50 to 100 years from now, this could happen. But you never, but you have you to never start know. Now. Yeah, right. but you have to start now thinking about it. So you have 50 years at least to stock up on your favorite wine, right? <laughs> What's I think interesting about thinking about the long term on this one is most people don't really have an understanding of the history of wine, but for the wine geeks here who, who are, when sailing ships became fast enough that there was really quick travel between America and Europe, what happened was that cuttings from America would be brought back to Europe. And in the 1800s, so the 1840s, 50s, 60s, new plant diseases came from America to Europe and almost wiped out winemaking and grape growing as we know it because there was this little bug on the plant called phylloxera that attaches itself to the root system of the grapevine. And European grapes had no resistance to this bug at all, whereas American wine grapes did. So it practically destroyed every vineyard in in Europe. And this was a major, major issue for, for this industry and for, for wine drinking as we know it. And I, I certainly can foresee something like that happening again. I mean, there was no warning to the European wine growers that that this was going to happen and suddenly their vineyards started dying. So I kind of see this sort of warning as being something similar, like let's think ahead of what possibly could happen and come up with some responsible ways of dealing with it now. I'm glad you mentioned the cuttings thing, Kim, because when you first start learning about wine, you're hearing about how they, they do these cuttings to, to prevent disease in plants. But you're thinking, I was thinking always, you know, we're planting a seed and we're growing a grapevine and it never really happens that way. And it's very common in agriculture, even with like apples, you're not planting a seed and growing a tree and waiting 40 years for your right. first apple to come on the tree. So are they saying in this now, so the, the research would be to develop seeds to come up with new grape varieties or to cross cuttings to create a new so when a new grape variety is created it's done just basic plant biology where they will use a parent two different parent plants and then will cross those to produce a seed which is then planted to produce a new plant and then once that new plant is grown and the growers or the scientists figure out that yes this plant has all of the characteristics that we want to to use and to have then from that plant cuttings will be taken that will then be propagated. So the original brand new plant does start from a seed. That's how the crossing happens. And a lot of people when we're when we're talking about how grapevines are grown and how how new grapes are developed, there aren't really any GMO grape varieties out there, at least not for winemaking. So it really is just using basic plant biology like you learned freshman year biology class, you know, where you have a mother plant and a father plant and you have reproduction and then you have a brand new plant that is different from both of the parents as your new plant. And then going forward, 
word, then you're using a lot of cloning. But it's not necessarily science that's done in a lab with any genetic engineering. It's literally done in greenhouses. So there's a lot of plant scientists out there that do specialize in grape varieties and in creating these new types of grapes. I'm so happy you explained all that. You, you did it so well. I was thinking, you know, it's simple. I like you, this stuff. Yeah. The geekiness just came out right there. <laughs> That's right. So it, generally, uh, I'm thinking it's disease, right? It's disease, it, it, you know, yeah. but I'm, there's also talk about climate change. So I don't know how you could you know, develop something that's resistant to climate change, but disease is the big right. thing. Well, with the resistance to, cli- to climate change, what you're doing is you are developing grape varieties that either don't need as much water or can withstand a lot more water than a modern grape variety or grape, sorry, grapevine can withstand because grapevines usually are pretty sensitive to the amount of water that they either need or don't need. So that's one of the big ones is water. And then I think the other one has more to do with how much uh, heat they can tolerate because a grapevine will shut down over a certain temperature. I think it's 95 degrees Fahrenheit where it doesn't ma- really matter if it's if it's higher than that, then the plant just sort of shuts down and it stops doing whatever it's supposed to be doing. So there are certain grape varieties that are better with hotter weather and then other ones that are better with cooler weather. So I think that some of the research revolves around dealing with temperature changes as well. And this has to be based at some location to start with. So where did they say this research was being done? Did you notice? I didn't notice any area in the in the world they no, were saying they're doing this. No, I didn't notice with this one. I know for U.S., there are, I think, the two main places where they do this sort of research. They do it at University of California at Davis. But then there are also places up in the northern part of the country in, I think, Michigan and Minnesota that do a lot of this sort of research. Yeah, so the people here in the United States, probably if they come up with something, it's not going to help someone in Italy or France. I mean, it's different. Well, I don't think that they're necessarily only doing research for things that work in their environment, although that is a lot of the research. So a lot... So total international. So I I think so. I think there's a lot of back and forth because there was another article that we read that came out of one website that we like to listen to a lot and talk about called Social Vigneron that was talking about other disease-resistant grape varieties. And a lot of those were based in Italy and in France. But then doing some extra research into those grape varieties there is a lot of back and forth between those researchers in Europe and researchers here in the U.S. So I did see a lot of it does have to do with this international collaboration. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the second article that was related. And it was good that these came up at the same time. So they were saying healthy grapes need some sort of spraying. And we always, you know, I always like to say the sides, the herbicides, the fungicides. Mm-hmm. But in practice, I guess in practical purposes, they don't really want this, of course, on your grapes. So they have to come up with something that's resistant that you don't need to use it. And some sort of genetic research is mm-hmm. being done for that. So the, the, the main point of this article, and, and we've read this in other places, that grapes take a lot of these killers for either more mold or fungus or pests or bugs and other things in the vineyard that the when you look at say all of the agriculture of France wine is about 10% of the production but it uses about half the amount of pesticides that are put on on all sorts of agricultural crops so the the bulk of what is going on as far as chemical in the in on crops a lot of it goes to grapevine so with a little bit more of a push towards natural winemaking more organics out 
out there. Researchers are trying to find other ways to deal with these pests without just kind of taking the easy way out and just spraying the crops with all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and they're thinking these new varietals they come up with can reduce the sides by like, what, 90%? Something like, like that. Huge yeah. amounts. So, that, I mean, that's great. And people are very conscious of that. We see it with organics. We see it with sulfur. So to cut out the spraying, which a lot of people, I think, are not aware of when they think of wine. Mm-hmm. So I think it's good that this is something they're looking at. And then they also talked in this article, Kim, about Italy already has like 10 uh, resistant vines that they're working on. And then, of course, you being the, the big geek over me, you went and researched what those 10 were because they didn't say anything about them. Right. So this was interesting to me to look at okay, what are these crossings that, that they're trying to do? So like like we said before, grape varieties, so take Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir has been Pinot Noir for hundreds of years. But now what happens if we take that Pinot Noir plant as one of the parents and we cross it with another grape variety? Let What is the that child grape variety going to be all about? And a lot of the previous research has been using one parent that is a European grape and then another parent that's an American grape because American grape varieties are resistant to all sorts of different things than European grape varieties are because being separated for so long, there are different pests that attack them and then the plant has different natural resistance to those pests. So the thinking was, okay, so if I have a European grape variety that we really like the flavor of and we have an American grape variety that's really resistant to this kind of mildew, if we cross it, one of the child plants of this crossing hopefully will taste good and be resistant to mildew. So that, you know, that's the basic biology of it. It but sounds good and easy, right? It sounds but good it's and not. easy, but in reality, <laughs> researchers have had a really, really hard time getting to that point, to the point that most of what was produced neither tasted good nor was resistant. So it was it, technically easy to do, but in reality, doesn't end up producing the kind of great varieties that people are looking for. But I think with newer technology and with better science, we're getting to the point where and now this is what's going to happen. Now we have grape varieties that taste like those European grape varieties that we're used to, but do have some of this new world resistance. So that was what this research going on in Northern Italy is all about. And there are these 10 new grape varieties, some of which are starting to be approved by European regulatory organizations that govern wine in France and in Italy and in all of the EU. So there are some that it looks like they're going to start producing in the Veneto region of Italy, so around where Prosecco is produced, and then these other ones that have been released into France. So we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. But it, w- it was interesting that some of the, these parent grape varieties were very familiar, like Sauvignon Blanc. Merlot was the parent of a couple of them. And then there were the, the, these other ones that didn't even have names. They were just numbers. And I'm like, what is this grape variety? And I went and Googled it, and I couldn't find anything. I'm like, ooh, trade secrets. <laughs> like they, Maybe they just don't want that information out there. I don't know, but I couldn't not find any information on some of these but i'm like all right but it's i, I figure i figure secret. i figure in the back there somewhere this these great varieties that are all sort of super secret they're not a hundred percent Vitis vinifera, which are those European grape varieties. I think somewhere in their past, they have a grandparent that was a hybrid where one parent was new world, one parent was old world. And then slowly but surely, they're figuring out which particular plant has these resistant characteristics and the, the genes that they're looking to pass on. And then they just, they do their science. I'm glad you researched it more. And I was going to ask you exactly, you know, the region and I'm 
hearing that it was northern Italy doesn't surprise me because they're yeah. always like trendsetters and technology and wine making methods. Mm-hmm. And then that you also mentioned the EU is allowing it. It'd be interesting how the Italian wine laws classify it. Mm-hmm. I would assume it's going to start at, you know, IGT lower level yeah. and they have to build its way up. Yeah, I would think but so. But the technology is amazing. And every time I think of someone coming up with these numbered grapes or these different types of grapes, I'm always in my mind, I always think of like a cantaloupe sized grape, you know, that the, <laughs> the grapes are just genetically going to be bigger to get more out of a grape, but they never look at the size of you. Does that amaze you? Like when they look at these tomatoes and other agricultural products, it's always like how to make a bigger one, right? How to grow the watermelons bigger, how to grow. Well, it, grapes, wine grapes, that's not a, but that's not a characteristic not a that thing, you want. No, it's the opposite. In bulk wine, I would think if I had a huge grape, mm. you know, and picking one huge grape. That's I don't a know, good I was point. Just thinking, yeah, because you know, when we talk about grapes that produced quality wine, having a smaller grape is a positive thing because you're looking for the ratio of skin to juice, especially if you're doing a red a red wine, yeah, because sure you have more. Producer. Yeah, but then yeah. I hadn't thought about it for that. Or bulk like a brandy, producer, or where the juice is what's most juices, important. Yeah, yeah. What about for white so, grapes? I mean, you know, you really for a lot of them you don't have skin contact, so the juice is what's important. We'll hmm. number that right now. Old number seven is going to be a jumbo <laughs> jumbo grape, right? Cantaloupe Look size. For that, That's right? funny. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to get more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Now we're going to talk about a topic that was in academicwino.com about if a bottle closure is a, I guess, a sign or representative of the quality of the wine. And Kim, we're talking about cork, we're talking about glass closure, we're talking about screw caps, synthetic corks. When you open a bottle of wine, do you automatically associate a cork bottle with a good quality wine? I thought this was a really interesting study. So what they they did an experiment and what they did was they had 300 people and they tried to figure out at the beginning, do you know a whole lot about wine? Do you like wine? So these were people that were pretty novice wine drinkers. They liked wine, they but they didn't wasn't their their main thing that they wake up thinking about every morning like us. They did this experiment where they had four wines in four different glasses and they told all the participants, this wine came from a bottle that was closed with a screw cap and this other wine had a cork in it and this other one had a glass enclosure and this other one had, what was it, a, a plastic cork, yeah, I believe. So four very different closures and they had pictures next to the wine and said, okay, this is the bottle that it came out of. When in fact, all of the wines were exactly the same. They came out from a keg, so they never even saw the inside of a bottle and they had people taste the wine and give their impressions of them. And far and away, the majority of the participants all said that the wine that came out of a bottle that they thought had a cork in it tasted and smelled superior to all the other ones. Yeah, so typical mind game in the wine world. They always have to trick you somehow, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing they started with was most of the studies done to say corks are associated with good quality are done by the Portugal Cork Association. And we've seen this in other research. So that's bias. It totally is. So, and they're saying from that, from those 
most studies, like 68% of the people say, yeah, cork is the way to go because they're the cork producers. They're the people making Yeah, they have a cork. vested interest in you wanting to associate a corked bottle with a higher quality wine. So this study was done in Washington. And I guess they using a, a basically a box wine or a keg wine. So they didn't know, they didn't see it being opened. And they just as, assumed seeing the cork next to the wine that it was a cork. Right. They were told wine. that it was from, from a bottle that had a cork in it. And it's almost like if someone tells you it's a hundred dollar bottle, what do you think of it? It's mm-hmm. a ten dollar bottle. You automatically in your mind think, okay, so I guess the study is really valid because it you're seeing the cork and yeah, it is associating yeah. something. So in a way, I think it's a good link for quality association. But this power of suggestion and it's no one told these people, hey, the bottle that has a cork in it is better quality wine. They made that assumption and it and they sort of changed their perception of the wine based on what the closure was, which everyone, not everyone, because obviously not everyone in the study said the same thing, but these tasters had this idea in their head, this this bias towards cork being part of a wine that is of better quality. And then they would downgrade the wines that were in a screw cap. You know, nobody said, hey, the screw cap is a cheaper bottle, but they had this implicit bias towards the screw cap that because it was capped in something that didn't have a cork in it, therefore the quality must be lower. And they did stress this. There wasn't a group of wine geeks or real hardcore wine drinkers. It was just a general group of people who drank wine and had these opinions. But so, Kim, when you open a bottle, and we talk about corks a lot in the past, there's real natural wood corks and there's synthetic or plastic corks. When you open a bottle and you see it's a synthetic cork or a plastic cork instead of a natural cork, does it does it tip something off in your head saying, oh boy, this is this the quality's got to be cheap because well, they didn't I think, spend the money I think on that's it. what is at the heart of this study. It's that I don't think anybody came into it with the idea in their head that, oh, because this isn't a real cork, therefore the quality is lower. I think that they m- made valid. the assumption without without even knowing that they were making that assumption. And that's what this experiment is letting us know, that people come into this with this idea that, oh, it's got a cork in it. It must be better without making that connection consciously. As, as wine buyers and wine lovers, I, I do automatically, if I spend, say, 30 bucks on a bottle, someone's bringing me in a wine to try, and then I look at the cork and I say, they're charging all this money, but they're not going with cork. They're going with a synthetic. Why? Are they cheaping out on that? So I, I always, it does click in my head that something something weird with the quality to me. If you, if you, But is that quality or is that amount of money that the producer wants in, to spend? In hindsight, it's probably not, but in my head, I'm already triggered. These guys are cheap. They're not using real cork. So that's or, yours. You know, if so it's, it's a glass that... cork, I'll think, wow, they're, they're innovative. They're putting some money because a glass cork obviously worth more money huh. than a natural cork. So you cork. are biased so by closure. I, I am. I am. I huh. hate that. But I am. But it, <laughs> it's same with labels. We talk about labels yeah. and everything else. I, I automatically, and I hate that I already have opinion. And the funny thing is if you told me the price, it doesn't matter. But... The but you say it doesn't matter, but maybe it does matter. Well, it only matters if I like it, and then they say, "Well, it's a hundred bucks." So y- yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Everybody it's like, would like it. Consciously, you're saying, "Okay, I have a bias against closure," but but consciously, I don't have a bias against price. But maybe you subconsciously do have a bias about price. Well, now I got to sit on the couch to so analyze now we need this to do some experiments. This is, this is de- you know, I just feel consumers, and we. This all goes back to the whole romance of the cork. I think the same thing when a sommelier opens 
opens your bottle at a restaurant, the whole procedure of uncorking it versus, you know, unscrewing it. I think you're automatically thinking, you know, if you had a group of business people with you and you bought a wine and they take the cork out or they unscrew it, what are people going to think about your selection or the quality? They think right away, like this study says, cork, it's associated with quality. Right. So And and how do we change? I, I, I like to think that we are slowly but surely changing the mindset of people that screw cap does not necessarily mean an inferior wine. And as better wines come out with other kinds of closures, hopefully people's minds will change. But this is letting us know that, yeah, that change is slow. Can't change people's opinions overnight. Consciously, you might be able to say, okay, this is a $25 bottle of wine. Don't be scared that it has a screw cap. It still is good quality and you could taste it and be like, oh yeah, this is really good stuff. But subconsciously, it's harder to change those opinions for people. And I think when we do events, a lot of times we show, we always like to show, here's what came out, you know, this is how it was closed. I don't know if people really look at that. I know I like to display the closures and Mm -hmm. I don't think even people want to pay attention to it. But maybe now we know that people do, even if they're not, you know, know, even registering it. Yeah. In the study, they also said, so the the cork was the number one associated with quality, higher than synthetic, higher than glass. And I think probably screw cap was the lowest mm-hmm. of a quality. And we, like you said, can we always try to get people to not think of a screw cap wine as a cheap or inexpensive wine? We always like to think, you know, and I was told a long time ago by a winemaker that if the screw cap came out before cork, they would have never been cork invented because it's just the best closure. Yeah, I like right? that line. So I, I thought, I did think it was interesting that the uh, glass enclosure, sorry, the glass closure was um, rated almost as high as, as the cork because there is some Something sort of fancy about a glass yeah. cap. I love the glass. Cl- I, it's I very like them. rare. You, you know, yeah, there are a few a bottles out there. And I've had a hundred dollar bottle and I've had a ten dollar. You've seen the mm-hmm. the um, Corvina that comes in Italian yeah, wine. It's twelve dollars a, a bottle and they're using glass. And the first thing I always tell people when they buy it is, okay, don't put your cork through, <laughs> through this because it happens. People just drill it through the the foil. But yeah, great. I think it's a great closure. Yeah, I think this is fun to think about. How do we view certain things? without necessarily making those conscious decisions and and how it does the psychology play into this and then how is this then used by marketers because we talk about marketing of wine a lot with labels and bottle shapes and bottle weight and glass and all, all sorts of stuff. And this is another component of that that wine marketers can kind of have in their in their toolkit as to how to make people have a different impression about their wine even before they pour it in their glass. So Kim, you go into a store and I'm going to challenge the listeners to follow you too when you do this. So you go in a store and two wines, same price, same grape, different closures. Do you, you don't reach for the cork over the screw cap or is it situational? Like if if you're going to someone's house, would you take the, the cork over the screw cap or you just have no opinion on it? I try not to have an opinion on what See, the closure I, is. I can't believe that. I just, <laughs> I just can't. And maybe that's there my own be... bias is that I try so hard to make sure that I let other people know that closure doesn't impact quality, that, that maybe that's my prejudice. And I do still believe it inside and just don't want to talk about it. But I, I don't know. Somebody need, maybe needs to, well, even, yeah, somebody needs to follow me. Even though 
though this do. was not from the the cork producers, they didn't mention that one to what this, what's the number one to five percent of all cork bottled wines are guaranteed bad because right. of bacteria on the cork. They didn't put that they didn't out talk there about cork in bottles this at all right in, in this, this study. So to me, I'm looking at two bottles. I might if I'm bringing it somewhere, I don't want to look like a fool bringing a bad bottle. You know, they think I'm the wine geek, and then I bring them a bad bottle because of the the cork. You have a one to five percent chance that it's bad, right? Just from the cork. So but they didn't talk also, about that in this study. You know, if you're the one following me into a store and I decide what to buy because I want to make a good impression on somebody, but because it's me and people know that, oh, Kim's bringing the wine to the party. It's got to be good wine. Pressure. N- no, not <laughs> pressure. It's an opportunity for me to let people know that, hey, there is good wine out there. So it's a it's a teaching opportunity for me. So maybe I need to do it more. And I do do it. I, I totally bring screw cap wines to people's houses all the time. And I'm not shy about it. I use them in my tastings. I don't have any problem showing good wines under screw cap. So I like to think that it doesn't impact me, but maybe I do it more often because I'm trying to prove a point. It's funny how we highlight the closures when we do events because I remember a few events we've done where I've I've highlighted and said, tonight was the first event we've done where everything was screw cap. I remember that. You know, or tonight, you know, this is the only screw cap right. wine. Or, it's like, oh, so. and it, now it's unusual if we don't have at least a couple of screw cap wines in our lineup. Because really, I mean, the wines that we tend to, to use tend to be anywhere from like 10 to $30 a bottle. So I mean, we're not pouring $100 bottles in wine glass unless it's something really, really special. But in that medium price range, I, we, we have more and more and it's unusual not to get one these days. So did you think this study was a trick or did you think the way they went about it was the right way? Would you, I guess, would you do it the same way if you wanted to? Yeah, I thought point? this was a good study. You thought it was good. I thought this was a good study. So why not, my thing was, why not just open them in front of them? Let them, here's a cork ball, here's a screw cap, go through the process. Then I would like to know from that process, did they think they like cork because they like the process of opening it? Did they not like the screw cap because well, they wanted you to, twisted it They wanted off, to eliminate you know? that. So you're saying artificially put it all in Let them see it, how it's how the process of opening it is. So maybe, but they wanted to make sure that there wasn't really a taste difference. Yeah, that's why all the wine had to be exactly the same. I'm just thinking of putting it in the the head that you know some people don't want to go through the whole process of removing the foil, getting the corkscrew out. How many times have people come to you? Well, when you retail and say, I I just want something quick. I'm gonna, I want a screw cap because I want to do it right. Right, because I don't want to have a corkscrew. So maybe that also was another way. I mean, there's probably a million ways to do Mm. it, but I just feel like these. They trick you into thinking it instead well, of. Well, I thought I thought it was smart that it was all wine from a jug or from a box, so they do eliminate the factor of hey, what if there actually is a flavor difference between a screw cap wine and a cork wine and uh, a glass closure wine? So they took that variable out of the equation by giving everybody exactly the same wine that never even saw a bottle. So yeah, that's a good point. I wonder I, if there I was think that that was important. In the group, I, I'm just thinking of ourselves in the group. We look at each other like. I don't care what closure. It's horrible. Like it's, like, yeah, it's no, like, hmm. the quality of the wine in general right. is no good, right? So it, they do mention at the end of the article that this might be an interesting study to do with people who are a little bit more experienced with wine, whether it means that people would figure out the trick and say, hey, this is all the same wine. Huh. Or that if you have a little extra knowledge and maybe you're not quite as biased against some new technology when it comes to closures. So that would be an interesting follow-up study we should do this as a class right i think we should do some Quality funky stuff like can this you tell and then do the same exact thing yeah but see if people can pick do some blind over. tastings yeah. and, and we, figure that out be a good idea 
You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. Please follow us on Facebook. Our page is The Wonderful World of Wine, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. 